Good morning, everybody. Like Joel said, my name is Matt, and uh, most of you know me, but uh, my wife, Marilee, we're creatures of habit. We're always right there. Uh, I'm, uh, we are proud parents of uh, Kaylee and Joshua. I want to give a shout-out to Kyle Davis. Kyle, can you raise your hand? Kyle is a buddy that uh, the passage we're studying this morning, uh, he and I actually memorized it this uh, over, I don't know, a couple of months ago, and we've talked about it a lot. So, Kyle, I didn't talk to you about this, but if things go south for me, what I'm going to do is just pretend I have a bad hamstring injury, and you're going to come up and take care, all right? <clears throat> anyway, let's pray before we get started. God, we, uh, we thank you. For your word. We thank you that you promise that uh, it can teach us, that it can correct us, and that it can prepare us to do good work. God, we give your spirit reign to say what it needs to our, to our hearts. And as it speaks, God, help us not to resist it. Help us to, to listen and to obey. God, I'd ask that you'd help me get out of the way and have the power of your word speak powerfully this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So how many of you have had the opportunity to see Hearst Castle in, uh, in California? I have not been able to see it yet, but I'm, especially after looking a little bit at it this week, I'm anxious to go. Uh, Hearst Castle was named after William Randolph Hearst. He was a newspaper tycoon and one of the wealthiest men of his day. He was also an avid art collector, and at one point he owned about a quarter of the most desired paintings in the world. And it was at this time that he sent his art agent out and said, you know, if there's a particular painting I, I want, go find it and, and buy it for me. So the agent returned a little later and said, hey, good news, I found your painting. Hearst said, great, where'd you find it? Well, sir, it was in your own warehouse. You bought it several years ago. So Mr. Hearst was looking for something he already had, something that was in his possession, but he wasn't experiencing the joy of it, wasn't able to actually uh, you know, live in the reality of it. And our passage this morning implies that a lot of Christians can be like Mr. Hearst, Paul is praying that the Ephesians would grasp all that they already have in Christ, the hope, the worth, and power that they have in him, and live in the joy and victory of it. We've just finished a series on Elijah, and I'm uh, really looking forward to the series we're going to start in a couple weeks uh, in 1 Peter, but this morning we're going to look at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 1. So let's stand, and we're going to read that together. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the earth, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. If you're a, a note taker, here's where we're headed this morning. Paul's prayer is that the believers would know God better, and he spells out three specific things he wants us to grasp. That we would know the hope we have in Christ, the inheritance that God sees in us, and the power of God that is available to us. And though Paul is writing to uh, believers some 2,000 years ago and on the other side of the world, we'll see that his prayer is just as relevant and applicable to us today. And we'll also see in Paul's prayer a practical example of how we can pray for ourselves and how we can pray for others. But before we dive in, you've already noticed that we're starting in the middle of a chapter, so let's first set some, some context for Paul's prayer. Paul wrote this letter uh, while he was in prison in Rome, and it was written to a number of house churches in Ephesus, and was probably also certainly shared with uh, churches in neighboring cities. Ephesus was an important trading and religious center for the Roman Empire, and Paul was a missionary there longer than anywhere else. He was there for over three years, and he had a powerful ministry and a deep love for the Ephesian believers. And this prayer that we're going to look at was, is set in the masterpiece that is the book of Ephesians. Paul spends the first three, book, three chapters of Ephesians focused on doctrine, thinking rightly about God. And then in the last three chapters, showing how that right thinking must be demonstrated in right living. And as far as the context of the chapter itself, we see Paul's prayer is preceded by a beautiful poem of praise. It's a run-on sentence in Greek from uh, verses 3 to 14. And it spells out everything that we already have in Christ. In fact, Paul says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God the Father chose us. He predestined us to be holy, and he adopted us. God the Son redeemed us. He bought us back by paying a ransom with his blood. And the Holy Spirit sealed us. He guarantees our inheritance. There are probably at least three, four, five sermons in there. If we were to attempt to unpack it, we're not going to do that this morning. So let me just share one thing that stood out to me this week. We are adopted into God's family. We are children of God. I pray that that truth, the power of that truth, will always rock me a little. My wife, Mary Lee, was adopted as an infant, and sometimes I think about her parents going to the hospital to get her, to hold her for the first time, and with full hearts saying, you are mine. Nothing will ever take you from me. And that's what God promises to us. He will never leave us or forsake us. First John promises <clears throat> see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. 
And that's just one of God's blessings. By the way, I believe meditating on our blessings in Christ will always result in a thankful heart, a contented heart, and an attitude of gratitude. A grateful heart is proof that we're actually experiencing, actually living in the reality of all the blessings that we have in Christ. So why don't we always feel grateful? Well, life, life happens, doesn't it? Kids get sick and cranky. There are sleepless nights. It's a Sunday today, a day off of work for most of us. And I know some of you aren't really able to enjoy it because you're already dreading what you have to face at work tomorrow. Or maybe you lost a friend at school or you're being picked on or bullied at school. Or maybe you're just lonely. It can be really hard to be all alone. How can we refocus our hearts? How can we cultivate an attitude of gratitude? Let me just suggest a couple ways. Read his word with an eye toward blessing. The poem of praise there in verses 3 to 14 in Ephesians 1 is a great place to start. Memorize it. Meditate on the fact that you've been chosen, that you're a child of God, that you're forgiven, that you have hope for a future with God. And pray for it. Ask God to give you a grateful heart. Pray, Lord, teach me to offer you a heart of thanksgiving and praise in all my daily experiences of life. Teach me to be joyful always, to pray continually, and to give thanks in all my circumstances. I accept them as your will for my life. I believe another effective way is to keep a gratitude journal. I'm a believer. I've done this for the past three weeks. (laughs) And it has actually changed. It's changed my, my outlook. I spend a few minutes right before bed jotting down things I'm grateful for. These are some some entries from the first night I tried it. I'm thankful for a medium rare steak. I'm thankful for 7-Eleven's quarter pound big bite and a Coke Zero for $2.22. I might have been a little hungry. But some of the things as I jot them down are are more cherished, and I, I, dry, I write them down with a lump in my throat. I'm thankful for a wife that loves me, warts and all. I'm thankful for parents that pray for me and have paved a path for me to follow. I'm thankful for a, a pastor you all know who believed in me and saw, saw how God might use me when I didn't believe it myself. And forgiveness. That's made my list almost every night. I'm with you, Andy. I've been overwhelmed that I've been forgiven, that God looks at me and because Jesus died for me and I cling to him, that he sees the righteousness of Christ in me. That truth, that assurance carries me through the tough stuff that we all have to go through. Max Lucado says, gratitude gets us through the hard stuff. Gratitude always leaves us looking at God and away from dread. It does to anxiety what the morning sun does to valley mist. It burns it up. All right, let's get back back to our text in Ephesians. 
For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Paul says, for this reason. So it begs the question, for what reason? Well, since they have all those blessings in Christ, Paul prays that they would experience them and grow to know God more and more. And notice two things Paul says about the Ephesian Christians. He says they had faith, right thinking in Christ, and that was demonstrated in their love for other believers. True faith will always be proven by love, love for God and love for others. And don't miss this little gem. I've not stopped giving thanks for you. Paul was thankful for them, and he told them. When was the last time you said a specific thank you to another Christian? I encourage us all to pray for opportunities, maybe even on your drive to church. Ask God for opportunities to encourage and to thank other believers and see what happens. And when God prompts you to thank someone, be courageous and say what's on your heart. Be truthful, don't flatter. Be specific and say it and see what happens. There's not enough of that these days. I know our church would be even stronger if we made it a point of praying and looking for opportunities to say thank you to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's Paul's main idea. He he prays that God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, would give them wisdom, wisdom that ability to apply God's timeless truth to everyday life and revelation so that they would know God better. Most of my prayers over my life, to be honest, have been selfies. Back in school, it was, God, help me pass this test that I haven't studied for. Probably going for a miracle there. But (laughs) later it was, God, help me find a wife. Or, Lord, please help my children be healthy. God, help me find a job that'll that'll meet our bills. And there's nothing wrong with those prayers. In fact, Paul instructs us later in Ephesians to pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. But those shouldn't be our only prayers. It's clear that we should also be praying, God, regardless of the circumstances that are going on in my life right now, all the trouble, I pray that you would make me know you better. Our prayers shouldn't just be focused on making life easier, but on knowing God better. Let me ask, do you think a prayer that God would allow you, your spouse, your children to know him more deeply is a prayer that he would answer? Psalm 63 says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. King David was in the desert when he wrote this, and I'm sure he was feeling physical thirst. But it's clear his deeper thirst was to know God better. Merrily and I were able to spend some time in the desert over spring break. 
We stayed with our, our friends Stephen Colette and Mick in Phoenix for, uh, for a couple days, and then we were able to, to travel north and spend one day at the Grand Canyon. Over the course of uh, maybe eight hours, we went to ten different viewpoints and uh, looked at the uh, museum, and it was breathtaking. I mean, just the immensity of it. Uh, staggering. So if you ask Marilee and I, do you know the Grand Canyon? Yeah, yeah, we know the Grand Canyon. But uh, Mark and Sherry, where is Mark and Sherry? There they are. Uh, they took it up a notch. They rode mules from, it's 10 miles down, that little narrow path with some huge cliffs, mind you, uh, from the rim all the way down to the Colorado River. So because of the time that they spent, the effort, their spirit of exploration, they know the Grand Canyon at a totally different level than I do because uh, Marilee and I just looked at it from the rim. And I have a friend, uh, Jeff, he and his wife, Lori, are uh, at a, a much deeper level. They spent 23 days rafting the 227 miles that go through the Grand Canyon. I called Jeff this week and said, tell me about it. And he said several times, amazing, absolutely amazing. He talked about the difference in rock formations as you go through. He talked about the power of the Colorado River, about the rapids and how their raft was capsized twice. He talked about finding Indian artifacts along the way. <clears throat> so Jeff and Lori are at a totally different level. Their, their experience is much deeper, much more profound than what Marilee and I experience. If I go to the Grand Canyon again, I don't just want to stand on the rim. I want to experience it. I want to hike the Bright Angel Trail. I'm not going to take the mules. I'm not that brave or that crazy. <laughs> but I want to see it at sunrise and at sunset. I want to feel the heat of the day and the freezing cool of night. But I know I could spend a lifetime there and still not know it. How about you and your walk with God? Have you been content just gazing from the lookout? God is infinitely more glorious and immense and beautiful than his creation. And I fear too often we're satisfied to stand on the rim sometimes for years, rather than praying that we could know him more deeply and also taking the time and effort to explore the wonders of our, of our God. J.I. Packer says, Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. So if knowing God is the goal, what does, all, what does Paul pray that we know? He prays first, that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened. And that's more than just great poetry. It is that, but it's more. Paul is praying that our entire being, our mind, our will, our emotions would be able to truly see, so that through the challenges and disappointments and discouragement of this life, we won't lose sight of the hope that is ours in Christ. Today we use hope as something we'd really like to see take place, but aren't very sure it will ever happen. We say that we hope the Blazers will win another NBA championship. 
that they'll host another victory parade like they did back in 1977. But maybe a lot of you are like me and admit that I believe that a little bit less every year. <laughs> hope in scripture is not that kind of hope. Biblical hope is a reality that is absolutely assured, but that we have not fully experienced yet. It's absolutely guaranteed based on the promises of God. We have hope because God has saved us. And our salvation is assured by the all-powerful, all-knowing God who loves us and gave himself for us. We have the hope of an eternity with him where there will be no more suffering or tears or death. And we've got to remember that wasn't always true for us. It wasn't true when we were non-believers. Paul says later in Ephesians, Remember, at that time, you were separate from Christ, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The song says it well, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is a difficult time for many of us. Today is the, the year anniversary of Laura Morgan's passing. And April Fisher, our beloved uh, youth leader, passed away on May 17th, a little over a year ago. And we grieve. The pain is real. We miss them. But we don't grieve as those that have no hope. We have the assurance that April and Laura are now face to face with Jesus. If I listen close, I can almost hear April's laughter echoing through the hallways of heaven. And in my mind, I see Laura crocheting. I'm not sure if you crochet in heaven or not. I believe it. <laughs> I see you're crocheting a beautiful blanket for another saint. And I believe she's looking forward to the day when she can crochet side by side with my wife, Marilee. Sure, we grieve. It hurts. But because of Jesus Christ, we have a hope that is absolutely assured. So the first part of knowing God better is to know the hope to which he has called us. And the second thing Paul wants us to understand are the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Notice this is not the inheritance we have in Christ, our forgiveness, our adoption as sons and daughters, our redemption. He's talking about the inheritance God has in us. What? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't sound right. Inheritance can be defined as possession as a result of the death of another person. It's hard to even wrap our minds around it, but God considers us an inheritance because we've been redeemed by the blood of his son. And we are no longer our own, but we belong to him. We've been bought with a price, and we have a purpose. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What good works has God prepared for us to do? There's a sense that that probably is going to be as unique as each of us. But one thing... I know he wants us to do is to point to Christ, to give him the glory. 
First Peter says that we are God's special possession, and he explains our purpose as his possession is to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So if you're asked to share and you don't know what to say, don't panic. Just point to Jesus and declare his praises. You can never go wrong with that. Share from your heart how God has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So Paul prays that uh, we would know the hope we've been called to, the inheritance God sees in us, and that we would comprehend the incomparably great power available to us who believe. Superheroes with superpowers are all the rage at the movies these days. You can ask my family, and I say, I'm done. You get to Ant-Man, that's, that's taking it too far. All these heroes possess some cool power or skill in themselves that allows them to leap tall buildings or to dodge a speeding bullet. We're not talking about that power. Jesus, Jesus made it crystal clear when he said that apart from him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing of eternal value. So I looked up nothing in the Greek, and that didn't help. It literally means not one thing. <laughs> Zip, nada, diddly squat. Any power we have is the power of God working through us. At our best, we're a conduit, a channel of God's love and power. The hymn says it well. We don't sing this one anymore. Channels only, blessed master, but with all your love and power, Flowing through us, you can use us every day and every hour. And that resurrection power, that power over sin and death is available to us. Where do you need that resurrection power in your life today? What's dead or dying in your life? What in your life is badly in need of resurrection? It might be that your marriage is slowly unraveling. Maybe it's an addiction that you know that on your own you'll never defeat. Or maybe it's a fractured relationship with your parents or your children that doesn't feel like it ever, could ever be mended. Or maybe what's dying is hope, a belief that there's nothing to look forward to and it makes it so hard just to keep on keeping on. How can we tap into that resurrection power? We tap in by drawing near to God in believing prayer. The Psalms tell us that God is near all to all who call on him. His power is available to us, and we must believe that he's able to carry us through our greatest temptations. The worries that keep us up at night, and the disappointment and regrets that threaten to drag us down. The key is knowing him, the one with the power and drawing near to him. Psalms tells us, taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you don't know where to start, let me just suggest a couple ways. First, I challenge you for the next two weeks to commit to five minutes a day with God, reading the Bible and praying. And you can pray something like this before you you begin. Lord, fill me with your spirit 
and teach me from your word that I might live for you today. Lord, teach, uh, fill me with your spirit. Teach me from your word that I might live for you today. It might be hard to find time at first, but as you taste and see that the Lord is good, your hunger for him will continue to grow, and you'll find that five minutes is not enough. So I challenge you to try it for two weeks. And if it doesn't work, or if it does, I'd love to talk to you about it. Two weeks from now, we're going to be at the retreat. We'll have plenty of time to talk. My uh, name is also in the back of the bulletin. I'd love to have you either text or, or, or call me. Hebrews tells us that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. So as you read his word, focus not on knowing about God, but on knowing God. It's about a personal relationship with the God of the universe who loves you and gave his son for you. A great book to start with in those five minutes is the book of John. John says at the start of his book, No one has seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. John's gospel tells all about Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, and in him we can learn about God the Father. Ask yourself as you read John, who is Jesus? What's he like? How does he relate to people? What are his claims? What are his promises? And as you begin to know more about Jesus, you'll begin to know more about God. And to know him is to love him. And you can pray the Ephesians prayer that we've uh, looked at this morning. Pray it for yourself and pray it for others. Pray it for your children. Let's have the worship team come forward. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, a personalized prayer uh, of uh, taking this message and, and make, it, make it the prayer of your heart as well. Let's pray. Lord, give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that I might know you better. Open the eyes of my heart so that I might know the hope to which you've called me. Help me see the inheritance you have in me. And God, let me grasp the incomparably great power available to me because I believe. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.